Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Back on June 24, 1947, a private pilot named Kenneth Arnold claimed to have seen nine shiny, unidentified flying objects zipping over Mount Rainier at speeds in excess of 1,200 miles an hour. The description Arnold gave to a reporter later on is where we get the term flying saucer. Kenneth Arnold's landmark UFO sighting also sparked a huge number of other eyewitnesses to come forward claiming they too had seen their own flying saucers. What doesn't get reported quite as often is that about a month after Arnold's sighting, he was contacted by Ray Palmer editor of the science fiction magazine Amazing Stories. Palmer told Arnold he had been contacted by a harbor patrolman from Tacoma, Washington, who claimed to have seen a group of flying saucers three days earlier than Kenneth Arnold's sighting. Not only that, but this man also claimed to have actual physical evidence to back up his claims. Palmer sent Arnold to Tacoma to investigate. It all began on June 21, 1947, with a man named Harold Dahl. He was the captain of a patrol boat in Puget Sound. There was nothing particularly unusual about the day. That afternoon, the skies were clear and the water was calm. Dahl was out on his boat patrolling the East Bay off Maury Island. Also on board were two crewmen, his 15-year-old son, and Dahl's dog. Dahl claimed that at around 2 p.m. as he steered the boat around Maury Island, he was startled by a bright, shining light coming from overhead. Dahl was dumbfounded as he looked up at the sky and saw six large, circular, metallic aircraft hovering overhead. Dahl squinted against the light glimmering off the object's shiny exteriors. He knew right away that these weren't your typical military aircraft. In fact, they weren't any sort of aircraft he had ever seen before. He estimated the objects to be about 100 feet in diameter, each with a large circular opening in the center, sort of like a donut. Around the perimeter of each of the objects, he could make out what he described as small circular porthole-shaped windows. Not only did these objects look like no aircraft doll had ever seen before, but they didn't behave like any typical aircraft either. Five of the objects danced around in the sky, circling the sixth craft. Dahl estimated that all six circular craft were hovering at least 2,000 feet overhead, at first, Dahl just stood there slack-jawed as he stared up the sky. But then, when the craft in the middle began to descend, that suddenly broke Dahl's paralysis, and he immediately began steering the boat closer to shore as he realized the object was getting closer. The object descended to about 500 feet. That was when Dahl heard a loud thud in the water nearby. 
As he squinted up at the sky, he noticed that one of the portholes he'd spotted was now open, and some sort of debris had begun spewing out of it. Whatever this material was that was pouring out of the hole was shiny and reflective. It looked like some sort of hot, molten liquid. Most of the debris rained down into the water around them, but then one piece came down and struck Dahl's son in the arm, causing a severe burn. Moments later, another chunk of the debris came crashing down and crushed Dahl's dog to death. Dahl couldn't believe what was happening. He thought he was losing his mind. Yet at the same time, some part of Dahl realized that no one would ever believe his story. He needed proof. He had a camera with him, so he snatched it up and began snapping pictures. He also picked up a chunk of the metal and hung onto it. As soon as the molten metal finished spewing out of the flying saucer, all six craft suddenly shot off into the sky at an incredible rate of speed and were never seen again. Now, before we go any further, I should point out at least one glaring problem with this story. And that's the fact that no one else other than Harold Dahl ever reported seeing these objects. This is despite the fact that this was on a clear summer day over Puget Sound. These six metallic objects should have been visible to lots of people. But as far as anyone knows, no one else other than Harold Dahl ever reported seeing these UFOs. Not even the other people on the boat said a word about them. Of course, at the same time, none of them ever came forward to dispute Dahl's story either. Okay, so the fact that no one else reported seeing the same thing as Dahl remains a big red flag. But at least he had both the photographs and physical evidence in the form of the strange metal the craft dropped to prove his story, right? Well, that's where things get even stranger. You see, because not only does the Maury Island UFO incident predate Kenneth Arnold's famous UFO sighting by three days, technically making it the first major UFO sighting in the 20th century, but it also marks the first time another infamous piece of UFO folklore was ever reported as well. Later that day, Dahl went home and developed the photographs. And luckily, he said he was able to capture some of the objects on film. Although he did admit that the photos weren't very clear, and there was apparently some sort of damage to the film because each of his shots contained these strange dark spots on them. But Harold stuck to his story. He knew what he saw, and he had the photos and the chunk of metal to prove it. The real problem showed up on his doorstep the following morning. That was when Harold received a knock on his door. Dahl opened the door and was met by a stranger standing there. You'll find differing accounts as to exactly what followed. Some versions say this stranger took Dahl to a local diner for breakfast. Others say he began talking to him right there on the porch before Dahl could even open his mouth. In either instance, it's what the man had to say that terrified Dahl. Because this stranger knew everything Dahl had witnessed the day before. Every detail. Right down to the photographs, the metallic debris, the burn on his son's arm, his dead dog. Everything. It was as if he had been right there with them on the boat. But this was impossible because Dahl hadn't told anyone else what had happened. The stranger then told Dahl that he needed to keep his mouth shut about what he'd witnessed and to destroy all the evidence. Or else bad things were going to happen to Dahl and his son. This was the first time in history that this particular part of UFO folklore was ever reported. Stories have persisted ever since of mysterious, darkly dressed individuals identifying themselves as government agents, who show up to intimidate, harass, and, some say, to physically harm UFO witnesses. These mysterious agents have sometimes even been described as possibly being alien beings themselves. According to UFO lore, Harold Dahl just had the very first encounter, with one of the men in black. 
I'm Nate Hale, and I'm going to need you to look at the flashy thing. And this is The Conspirators. The Men in Black had become just as much a part of UFO folklore as the Grey Aliens, Roswell, and Area 51. According to pop culture, these Men in Black show up right after a UFO sighting. They identify themselves as government agents, then proceed to threaten the witnesses into keeping quiet about what they saw. They are known for wearing crisp black suits and hats and are often seen driving vintage American cars. The Men in Black have gone on to become staples of pop culture. The rock band Blue Oyster Cult mentioned them in a couple of their songs, as did the British punk group The Stranglers, who wrote a song titled Men in Black, All One Word. In 1984, the movie The Brother from Another Planet featured two men in black who attempt to capture the alien hero of the film. Television programs like Fringe, Doctor Who, and The X-Files have all portrayed versions of these mysterious individuals. And we can't forget the popular Men in Black film series starring Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, which in turn was based on a comic book series of the same name. But is there any truth to these stories of the Men in Black? Well, that depends on who you ask. For most skeptics, the Men in Black, or MIB for short, are just one more bit of made-up folklore that has gained traction, along with all the other stories of UFOs and government conspiracies. But to people who claim to have personally encountered the Men in Black, they are very real, and very terrifying. Harold Dahl was reportedly so afraid of the threats the man in the dark suit who showed up on his front porch made toward his son, that he destroyed all the photographs and negatives he took of the flying saucers but not before showing them to his superior, Fred Chrisman. It was Chrisman who noticed that the negatives appeared to have damaged spots on them, as if they had been exposed to radiation. Chrisman is also the one who reached out to Ray Palmer, who in turn sent Kenneth Arnold to investigate the Maury Island incident. Palmer went on to call in two U.S. Army specialists to follow up on the UFO report. The two Army men took a box of evidence with them for examination. Only the B-25 they were riding in mysteriously crashed on August 1st, 1947, while they were en route from Tacoma to San Francisco. Both of the Army investigators died in the crash, but the plane's pilots survived. This sounded awfully suspicious to a lot of people, including members of the press. The Tacoma Times would later suggest that the plane may have been sabotaged or shot down to prevent further inspection of the cargo. Immediately after, the FBI began their own investigation. They ultimately concluded Dahl and Chrisman staged a hoax for publicity. The FBI sent samples of the metal fragments Dahl had collected and they determined it to be nothing but common metal slag from a local foundry. Edward J. Ruppelt, the military officer who in 1956 was in charge of Project Blue Book, the Air Force's official investigation into flying saucers, also stated candidly that he believed Dahl and Chrisman's story to be phony. So does this mean that Dahl's story about encountering a man in black to be made up as well? Dahl claimed to be so scared of the Man in Black's threats that he destroyed all his evidence. Yet at the same time, he apparently wasn't all that scared because he did become awfully chatty about his UFO encounters afterwards. The FBI did note in their files that Dahl admitted that, if questioned by the authorities, he was going to say it was a hoax because he did not want any further trouble over the matter. It is true, though, that the Army and the FBI both found Dahl's story interesting enough to investigate. Perhaps then it is possible that a real government agent wearing a dark suit did show up and told Dahl to keep his mouth shut. 
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. We really can't begin to talk about the men in black, though, without first introducing you to Albert Bender, the man most often credited with single-handedly introducing the men in black to the world. Bender was quite an interesting individual. His obsession with all things strange and paranormal even predates Kenneth Arnold's June 1947 UFO sighting. Bender lived in the attic of a three-story house he shared with his stepfather. He developed a keen interest in the paranormal at an early age. He was a devotee of the works of Charles Fort, the legendary chronicler of all things strange and unusual who created the magazine The Fortean Times. In 1945, Bender became fascinated with the still-unsolved disappearance of Flight 19, a training squadron of Avenger bombers that disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle and helped create that particular legend. I have a longer episode about that disappearance if you'd like to check it out. Bender spent much of his time in his attic room where he built up a huge collection of paranormal books, journals, and newspaper clippings. After Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting, Bender bought himself a telescope and began watching the skies. Bender didn't just limit his interest to UFOs, though. He had a broad interest in all things supernatural. His personal library included the works of Bram Stoker, Mary Shelley, and Edgar Allan Poe. He bought Ouija boards and had books on witchcraft. Over time, he fashioned his attic into his personal chamber of horrors. He amused himself by inviting friends over to be scared by his collection of rubber bats, fake skulls, shrunken heads, and other spooky decorations with. By 1950, Bender began taking his UFO research more seriously. He created the first worldwide network of UFO investigators, the International Flying Saucer Bureau, or IFSB. This was the precursor to such groups as the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. Bender also began publishing his very own magazine, Space Review. Over time, Bender began making a name for himself in the paranormal community. But things took a turn on July 30th, 1930. That's when Bender received a strange phone call. When he picked up the phone, no one spoke on the other end of the line. But something inside him told him there was someone there listening. As Bender held the receiver to his ear, his head suddenly began to throb. He grew incredibly dizzy and was forced to lie down. A few days later, Bender began feeling better. He decided to go to the movies, to see a sci-fi film, of course. As he walked home in the dark, Bender had the overwhelming sense that he was being followed. He picked up his pace and rushed home. By the time he got inside his house, his stepfather was already asleep, so he tried to be quiet as he made his way upstairs to the attic. But on approaching the door to his room, Bender was surprised to see an eerie glow emanating from the thin gap beneath the door. When he worked up the courage to fling open the door, Bender was hit by the overwhelming stench of burning sulfur. He was also temporarily blinded by a bright, shimmering object hovering in the middle of the room. Bender reached over and flicked on the light switch, at which point the glowing object immediately vanished. Bender looked around the room and he began to realize that some of his files and other papers were just slightly out of place. Someone had been rooting around in his things. Bender tried to put this unsettling experience out of his mind. He began to think that he'd just imagined the entire thing. 
But then, in November 1952, something else happened that shook his resolve. Bender was at the movies again when he began to feel an overwhelming sense of dread come over him. Suddenly, out of the corner of his eye, Bender was startled to see a humanoid figure materialize in a nearby seat. This figure looked like a man dressed in a dark suit. What was even scarier was that this man's eyes glowed like flashlight bulbs. Once again, Bender was hit with a wave of dizziness and nausea. He squeezed his eyes shut and tried to will the feeling away. When he opened them again, the man with the glowing eyes in the black suit was gone. He tried to focus his attention on the movie, but that was impossible. Minutes later, he began to get the overwhelming sensation of being watched, turned around and saw that the man with the glowing eyes was back, and he was staring directly at him. Bender got up and went straight home. Over the next few months, Bender's dizzy spells continued. He began telling people that he had begun being visited by three men who appeared to him out of thin air and floated about a foot off the ground. He described them as being dressed like clergymen, wearing black suits and Homburg-style hats. They communicated telepathically with him, telling him in no uncertain terms that he was to immediately cease all his UFO work. Bender claimed that these three men in black appeared to him multiple times and were increasingly threatening each time they appeared. In October 1953, Bender published the last issue of Space Review. The final issue included a cryptic message stating, The mystery of the flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known, but any information about this is being withheld by orders from a higher source. We would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of the information, we have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to be very cautious. Now, it is worth noting that Space Review was losing money. Whereas Bender publicly claimed that he ended the magazine because of his threatening visitors, the more down-to-earth explanation is that he had to stop publishing for financial reasons. In 1956, a fellow IFSB member named Gray Barker published a book titled They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, in which he revealed Bender's encounters with the Men in Black. In fact, it's from this book where we get the first official use of the phrase, The Men in Black. A decade later, Bender would publish his own book on his experience titled Flying Saucers and the Three Men. In his own book, Bender would stress how these dark-suited individuals were sinister in nature and used their mind-control powers to silence people. In 1953, Gray Barker claims that he received his own scary knock on the door. He said he was at his home in West Virginia when a man who identified himself as an FBI agent showed up at his front door. The special agent had a list of questions regarding Barker's work with the IFSB. Barker said he was scared out of his wits by the man who seemed to know a surprising amount about him. At one point, the agent showed Barker one of his business cards identifying him as chief investigator for the IFSB. This was especially unnerving because Bender had only had these cards printed a couple of weeks earlier, and Barker had only had time to hand four or five of them out to close friends, and those friends all still had them after Barker checked with them. Barker had no idea how the FBI agent got his hands on one of the cards. The agent then began asking Barker questions about a certain individual. Barker admitted later he couldn't recall the name the FBI agent asked him about. Skeptics will say this is awfully convenient and makes his story difficult to corroborate, but Barker claimed he couldn't recall the name because of how rattled he was by all the questioning. Barker told the agent that he didn't know the man he was talking about. The agent then told Barker that the man had suffered an epileptic fit and was taken to nearby St. Mary's Hospital. It was only after the interrogation by the agent was over that Barker began to wonder if this was all some sort of veiled threat. At the very least, he began to wonder if the man the agent had questioned him about 
really had suffered an epileptic fit, or something had been deliberately done to him. Remarkably, a copy of Barker's book made its way into the hands of J. Edgar Hoover, the legendary head of the FBI. An official internal FBI memo with Hoover's stamp on it describes Barker's claims of mysterious agents threatening citizens. This official memo denies any FBI involvement in the silencing of witnesses. According to the FBI, whoever these mysterious men in black were, they were not FBI agents. One curious detail that is not mentioned in the memo, though, is that it never once mentions the 1953 interview Barker claims to have had with an FBI agent. One big problem we have with Gray Barker is that he was known to... How should I put this politely? Make stuff up. Friends who knew Barker would later claim he often privately scoffed at true believers in UFOs and the paranormal and was known to stage pranks and exaggerate stories in order to sell books. The thing you'll begin to notice about the Men in Black legend is that over time each story seems to build on the one that comes before it. This mythology really begins with Albert Bender and Gray Barker and only grows from there. Barker went on to write a number of other books about the paranormal and UFOs, including 1970's The Silver Bridge, which helped spread the legend of another popular paranormal entity, the Mothman. And it's through John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, that we get a slew of other stories about the men in black. I have a whole episode on the Mothman that I encourage you to check out. But the short version goes that during the late 1960s, after a wave of sightings of the mysterious creature known as Mothman began in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, so too did reports start coming in of mysterious men in black appearing around town. It's also around this time when these stories of the men in black evolve even further. By now, they weren't just sinister government agents looking to silence people. These men in black looked and acted strangely, and some people believe may not have even been human at all. One story out of the Mothman prophecies tells of how one of these mysterious men in black showed up at a local diner in Point Pleasant and completely unnerved the waitress. She said the man appeared to be hairless with no discernible eyebrows. He asked for food without seeming to grasp the concept of what kind of food. When the waitress eventually brought him a steak, he acted like he didn't know how to use the utensils to eat it. Which leads us to the story of Dr. Herbert Hopkins, one of the most well-known and disturbing men in black encounters ever reported. Hopkins was an allergist by trade. He was also an amateur hypnotist and UFO researcher. Back in 1976, Hopkins was working as a consulting hypnotist on an alleged UFO abduction case in Maine. One evening, he was home alone and thinking about having dinner. He said he received a strange phone call. The man on the line told Hopkins he represented a New Jersey UFO research group. This group, Hopkins would later learn, did not actually exist. The caller asked Hopkins if he could drop by to talk to him about the abduction case. Hopkins said sure, although later on he would remark that even he found this a little strange how quick he was to say yes. Hopkins flipped on his porch light and opened the front door to make sure it was on. He was shocked to see his visitor was already walking up the front walk toward his house, but this was impossible. This was long before the days of cell phones and there were no pay phones anywhere near. So how did the man phone him and still get there so fast? But things only got weirder from there. The man appeared to be completely bald, with no eyebrows or eyelashes. He wore a black suit, black tie, black hat, and an immaculate white shirt. The man's face was deathly pale. His nose seemed too small for his face. So too did his ears, which also appeared to be too low on his head. On top of all that, his lips were practically non-existent, and Hopkins could swear the guy was wearing lipstick. Despite how bizarre this all was, Hopkins actually let the stranger in. 
In retrospect, Hopkins later remarked how peculiar it was as to how agreeable he felt during this entire encounter. Hopkins led the stranger to his living room and they sat opposite each other on the chair and couch. The man asked Hopkins several questions about his hypnotism sessions with the alleged alien abductees. Hopkins answered all the man's questions, although at the same time he had the overwhelming sense that this man already knew everything he was going to say. With every answer that Hopkins gave, the man were to repeat the exact same phrase. Yes, that's the way I understand it. At one point, the man brushed his gray gloves against his mouth, and that's when Hopkins' suspicions were confirmed. The man really was wearing lipstick, and he didn't have any lips either. Then the man pointed at Hopkins' pocket and told him that he had two coins in it. Hopkins was shocked because the man was correct, only he couldn't possibly know this. The man told Hopkins to take one of the coins out of his pocket and hold it in the palm of his hand. Once again, Hopkins did as he was told. He took out a penny and held it in his palm. The stranger told him to watch the coin. The copper penny began to shimmer before Hopkins' eyes. It turned a bright silver right before it simply vanished. The man then told Hopkins that no one would ever see that coin on this plane again. The man in black then asked Hopkins if he knew about Betty and Bernie Hill, two of the first alleged alien abductees in history. Hopkins said he did. The stranger asked Hopkins if he knew what happened to Barney. Hopkins said he knew the man died, but not much else other than that. The stranger asked him if he knew what he died of. Hopkins said he wasn't sure. A heart attack, maybe? The stranger then replied that wasn't accurate. Barney Hill died because he knew too much. Before Hopkins could reply, the man suddenly and awkwardly got to his feet. He began to stumble towards the door, saying, My energy is running low. Must go now. Goodbye. He gripped the handrail on the front porch tightly as he stumbled down the front steps. Hopkins could only gape in astonishment as the man walked awkwardly away. He turned the corner and just as he did, Hopkins saw a brilliant blue flash of light appear. Then the man was gone. After Hopkins went back inside, that's when the wave of terror finally struck him. The more he thought about this encounter, the more terrified he became. When his wife and children got home, they found Hopkins seated at the kitchen table with all the lights on inside the house. He had his gun out beside him. Ultimately, Hopkins complied with the orders the stranger had given him. He erased the tapes he'd made during his abductee hypnosis sessions, and he withdrew his involvement with the UFO investigation. Was Hopkins telling the truth? It's impossible to say for certain. Although I was able to locate an archive of a blog post allegedly written by Hopkins' nephew who described his uncle as a fantasy-prone individual who craved the limelight. His uncle, he said, was an alcoholic. And he believed this story was just one more story the man dreamed up for attention. This brings us to the questions of just who or what are these men in black, and what do they want? By the 1970s, most of the stories about the men in black had begun to describe them as robotic and otherworldly. But if you go back to the 1950s, they were portrayed more as shadowy government agents, a lot more like Tommy Lee Jones in the movie. Then there are some members of the paranormal community who believe the men in black aren't human government agents or extraterrestrials in disguise. They're demons. Stories of people encountering mysterious black-cloaked individuals have been reported for centuries, and in most of those legends, the dark-clothed individual is later revealed to be Satan. It's possible to view the way we identify the men in black as reflective of the shifting of society's fears. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, the Cold War was in full swing and the American public was being constantly warned about the threat of communists living among them. The FBI, thanks to J. Edgar Hoover, was seen as all-powerful and all-knowing, 
The Red Scare of the 1950s abounded with stories of FBI agents showing up on people's doorsteps to question them about potential communists living and working among them. By the 1970s, though, those public fears had begun to shift away from communism in other directions, including aliens and the paranormal. In January 1953, the CIA gathered a group of scientists together to discuss all available Air Force data about UFOs. The head scientist, H.P. Robertson, recommended that all UFO sightings be debunked in an effort to discourage public interest. They suggested that civilian UFO groups should be watched. They even suggested that the CIA should reach out to Hollywood filmmakers, including Walt Disney, to help come up with stories that debunked UFOs. We know that the United States government is engaged in disinformation tactics to discourage people from investigating UFOs, possibly to keep them from stumbling onto real top-secret research projects. In a previous episode, we talked about the story of Paul Benowitz. He was an American businessman and UFO investigator who ran an electronics firm, Thunder Scientific, that did a lot of contract work with the Air Force and NASA. Benowitz bought a home just outside Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. Over time, he began seeing strange lights in the distance near Kirtland. So he did what he thought was his patriotic duty and began investigating further, thinking it might be some sort of security risk. The problem was, Benowitz became the real security risk when he began recording top-secret radio communications from Kirtland and filming secret weapons tests that he mistook for alien visitors. The Air Force assigned an intelligence officer named Richard Doty to Benowitz's case, from there, Doty began feeding Benowitz disinformation, gaslighting him into believing that an alien invasion was imminent. Benowitz grew so paranoid that his family had him committed to a mental hospital. That's the short version. You can hear the whole story in my series on Dulce Base. One problem we face with all the Men in Black stories is the simple fact that there is no physical evidence to prove they exist. Well, almost none. In 2008, security camera footage was released of two alleged men in black walking into the lobby of a hotel in Ontario, Canada, near Niagara Falls. Two weeks prior to the incident being caught on camera, one of the hotel's employees claimed to have seen a UFO hovering over the Niagara River in the early morning hours. The employee told about his sighting to some of his friends and co-workers. The two strange individuals appeared in the CCTV footage were dressed identically in black suits and hats. Both men were described by witnesses as being very tall and very thin and entirely devoid of hair. The men had the same icy blue eyes and they never seemed to blink. The two strangers kept asking to speak to the staff member who saw the UFO, but the hotel employee wasn't working that day. Employees who spoke to the men said they felt strangely unnerved by the experience. Some of them described feeling like the strangers could read their minds. When the men learned that the person they were looking for wasn't working that day, they continued to question the hotel employees about their belief in UFOs. Soon, the two men left just as abruptly as they arrived. Now, there are some skeptics who dispute this story as well. The security camera footage only shows two black-suited individuals entering a hotel. The footage is grainy and difficult to make out too many details. Some skeptics have even suggested that the footage may have been some sort of viral marketing stunt to promote the third Men in Black movie, which came out around the same time the footage was released. But if that's the case, no Hollywood marketing people have ever admitted staging a hoax. The one thing about the Men in Black story is that we don't have any examples of them actually hurting anyone. They intimidate, they make veiled threats, but there are no reports of them actually doing real physical harm to anyone. Unless there is. 
Max Spears was a 39-year-old UFO investigator from Kent, England. He had begun to make a name for himself in the paranormal community by going out in the lecture circuit. That circuit led him to Warsaw, Poland in July 2016, where he was scheduled to speak at a UFO conference. Max had been obsessed with the study of UFOs ever since he claimed to have seen one outside his bedroom window when he was five years old. By the time he was in his late 30s, he had begun doing research into what he claimed was a vast conspiracy involving a number of high-ranking individuals in the government who were actively covering up the truth about alien visitors. Now, to be clear, Max believed a lot of strange things. He claimed that he had been genetically altered as a child to become a super-soldier. He spoke a lot about astral projection and interdimensional travel. This has also led some critics within the paranormal community to saying that Max had a habit of stealing the work of others and claiming it as his own. A BBC documentary about Max Spears claimed that Max suffered from extreme paranoia. It's believed that Max began to suspect the warm welcome he'd been experiencing upon arriving in Poland was actually a cover for something much more sinister. A few days before his death, Max sent a chilling text to his mother that said, Your boy is in trouble. If anything happens to me, investigate. Max began feeling sick almost immediately after traveling to Poland. He took some over-the-counter medicine to help his upset stomach. A friend named Monica Duval offered to let Max crash on her sofa while he was in town. It's believed that the day before Max had begun running a high fever and he began to feel deathly ill. Soon after, Max began vomiting an unidentified black liquid. Within hours, Max was found dead on the couch. For some reason, despite the really strange way Max Spears died, no autopsy was conducted on his body and his initial cause of death was listed as inconclusive. This, of course, led to some huge public outcry among Max's fellow conspiracy theorists, who cried foul, and believed that Max may have been murdered to keep him from revealing what he knew. An alternate explanation for Max's death comes to us from the BBC documentary I mentioned, that claimed Max was a recovering drug addict who may have relapsed. A separate investigation by the Polish prosecutor's office described the initial police investigation as lazy, and incompetent. A later toxicology report presented by Polish authorities stated that Max died from taking an overdose of the Turkish equivalent of the anti-anxiety drug Xanax. But this explanation has left many people unsatisfied. Max's mother came to believe that there really may have been a cover-up in his death. A friend of Max's and fellow ufologist named Miles Johnston offered one possible explanation for Max's death. He stated that in the weeks prior to Max's trip to Poland, he and Max had become acutely aware that they were being followed. And the people who were following them? They were the men in black. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Monica and Genevieve for signing up and helping support the show. It really means a lot to me and it really helps keep the show going. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes, the latest of which will be dropping around the same time as this episode. It's a little story about a horrific disaster in the French court. You should check it out. Another way you can help support the show that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, I especially encourage you to subscribe to us over there. Apple recently made some changes to their podcasting platform, and I know it's caused some ripple effects throughout the podcasting community. You can also find us on Spotify and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts as well. 
Elsewhere, you can find us on social media. Over on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, we've been posting short-form videos that cover many of the same topics we cover here in this podcast. Elsewhere, you can find us on our Facebook page and Twitter, which I can't bring myself to call X. Feel free to follow us along in any of those places, or even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast.com and let us know how we're doing, or even send us episode suggestions. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.